Scientists have identified the key ways in which we humans are destroying the ecosystems on which we depend. Is there climate change? Yeah. I mean, will it change back? Probably, that's what I think. How dare you? The British Conservation Alliance was launched by students in the United Kingdom to advocate for market-based environmental reforms. You should be empowered to deal with those problems. Lebanon, Poland, Spain, the US, the UK, Austria. It's just really cool seeing all these people gather to talk about these ideas when we weren't doing this a year ago, and we're doing it now. We can begin to defend the Earth against the disaster of global warming. The Green Market Podcast. Hello, I'm Luke Warren, host of the Green Market Podcast, a show from the British Conservation Alliance in association with the Austrian Economic Centre and Cedargold that focuses on market environmentalism, ESG and impact investing, and the application of the Austrian School of Economics in tackling climate change and achieving our environmental ambitions. The COVID-19 pandemic has had catastrophic socio-economic effects on the modern world, whether that be from the health implications and loss of life or the effects of policies in response to the pandemic. However, one area that has not really been discussed in great detail is the effect COVID-19 has had on the environment. Governments and community leaders have certainly discussed the idea of a green recovery from the economic fallout of COVID, but the effects the pandemic and changes to human behaviour have had on the environment have not really been discussed. Today's episode will thus examine the effects of COVID-19 and the responses to it and the effects they've had on human behaviour and the ensuing effects on key environmental issues, whether that be air and water quality, biodiversity or recycling. Today I am joined by Tanya Senerib and Connor Tomlinson. Tanya is the International Legal Director for the Centre for Biological Diversity, which seeks to protect endangered species through legal action, scientific petitions, creative media and grassroots activism. How are you doing, Tanya? I'm well, thank you. Connor is the policy director of the British Conservation Alliance and a contributor for Young Voices. His work focuses on the way practical environmental policies can be used to strengthen and repair international relations. How are you doing? Very good. I'm feeling overshadowed by the qualifications of my, <laughs> uh, my co-panelists here, but I think I'll manage. <laughs> good. Um, I'd like to start by discussing the effect that the pandemic has had on human behaviours. Undoubtedly, the responses to COVID-19 have had a significant effect on behaviour, social distancing, working from home, etc. What behavioural effects has the response to COVID-19 had? Connor, would you like to start? Sure, I, I can go for that, yeah. I think, well, one of the main ways I think you can frame how the behavioural effects will last, first of all, is you can look at the way in which the government has approached the policy-making framework uh, throughout the pandemic. And that is, they've become increasingly utilitarian and they've gone against the preceding World Health Organization guidance for pandemics was essentially shield the vulnerable and don't quarantine healthy uh, populations so we can increase herd immunity, et cetera. And that was the initial practice. And now we know there was some debate as to when that kicked in. There's a lot of people kicking up, oh, we should block down sooner, et cetera. As you know, people have seen the Cummings hearings recently, I'm sure that will all come out in a, some kind of hearing or whatnot. Um, but the it seems that with, for example, Biden's Treasury Secretary at the moment and uh, Professor Neil Ferguson over here, there's uh, an increasing belief that the, the role of the state is to engineer the desirable behavioral outcomes of its citizenry because they won't do things on their own. And that's frankly both anti-principled because there's there's once you allow the state to legislate one desirable outcome, there's no limitation on the remit of what they're going to produce later down the road and you get to the utopian society and well the road's held as paper with good intentions but also we see this 
other than the Lural mass panic buying, which was sheer idiocy, a lot of people were already practicing things like social distancing and, and hand washing and whatnot, far before the government edicts came to play because COVID was in the zeitgeist. Uh, it actually got to the point where, for example, in the US, the WHO and uh, Anthony Fauci said, don't buy masks because they don't do anything. Da, da, da. And then they did the about face and they said, oh, yeah, we, we just simply lied because we were worried that we didn't buy enough PPE. And it's like, oh, okay, that's how we're treating it. We're simply just not going to give the full information because you want you want the populace to follow a, a certain uh, prescription. So the behavioural comes up pretty concerning because there's there's definitely an appetite among a lot of these sort of sage class to keep social distancing and mask wearing even beyond the pandemic because they believe, for example, it's some sort of sanitary custom. They often appeal to, oh, well, in Asian countries, cultures, they often wear it, etc. Well as a high trust society that's not something we're used to but there's definitely the appetite to to increase that there and uh, we see with behavioral scientists informing the idea that they wanted to use scare tactics to psychologically prime people to believe they're more at risk than they actually were um, there's the behavioral implications of this that is that beyond the environmental stuff that we're going to be seeing a a slow drip feed of, of people changing their way of lives in subtle ways even long beyond lockdown being repealed fully and Tanya, would you agree with that or? Yeah, I mean, I, I do, I want to sort of pull out one piece of that to highlight, which I think is really interesting. Nature actually had a great piece on just sort of studying mask wearing and you're right, like government edicts, how people have responded, the response wasn't great. But I think as we learned more about masks in this particular pandemic, what they could do, people voluntarily made decisions sort of as communities, I want to be protective of people. I understand in these certain scenarios, doing this is gonna be beneficial, not just for myself, but for the other people in my community. And to me, I think that was one of, sort of one of the things that keeps on coming up as we talk about sort of the environmental response, the human response to the pandemic, um, that gives me a little bit of hope. Um, you saw people, you know, getting all sorts of, in our two countries in particular, getting different kinds of information from scientists, from the government, from, you know, the, you know handing down different orders across our states in the U.S., um, and people really digging in and making decisions for themselves based on what they thought was the best factual information. Now, of course, there's questions about, you know, where you get your facts and, and if, if they're actually based in science or based on myth, but, um, and that's a whole other discussion. We could do a whole podcast on that, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, I think getting back though, specifically to changes in human behavior, you know, one of the other big things obviously is um, working from home and, you know, not everyone throughout the pandemic had that benefit and that luxury, but we did see a major shift in a lot of instances of people trying to do their, their jobs from their homes. Um, and I think that, you know, sort of to pivot and talk a little bit about some of the environmental impacts, that huge reduction in travel um, is really interesting to look at and really fascinating to talk about. So you had, and you know, in particular, I think my country, the U.S., is is very guilty of this. You know, we hop in, in cars by ourselves and go a lot of places, and and you know that includes going to work almost every single day, um, and that has huge environmental consequences. Um, and we can talk about the climate impacts of that, which is certainly significant. But there also are huge benefits um, to wildlife by not having so many cars on the roads, right? And so we've seen, you know, benefits to wildlife populations from less vehicles. And that's true for, for motor vehicles and roadways. That's true for um, 
lower demand by consumers and fewer ships. And so it's been benefits to marine life um, from not having ship strikes. And then of course, you know, um, airline transport has certainly been reduced. People aren't flying. Um, they're in many cases not able to leave their countries or if they did leave, they wouldn't be able to come back. And so, you know, that has also had benefits. And so, you know, I think some of that was obviously, some of that's been mandatory, some of that's been required, but some of it has been um, a flexibility within human society and people figuring out ways to be able to continue to do the work that they do in the world, but do it in a way that um, isn't going to expose them to certain risks. And there has been a lot of consequences from that. Even the way um, we consume goods as well has completely changed during the, you know, the lockdown. I mean, you know, for example, with Amazon, the number of people ordering off it um has dramatically increased as we all started working from home and 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 that kind of begs the question what about the amount of single-use plastic that's being used as a result and what about you know that side of things so there's certainly a change in that behavior as well and the environmental impacts we will certainly discuss more um connor i feel like i was just about to interrupt you there no i was going to pick up primarily on just a small point you said about working from home there are environmental impacts there yes definitely and especially decentralization of the workspace we don't just have the accessibility benefits but obviously over time as more renewables take up more space in the grid you're going to have a, a lot more sustainable the ability to do the information economy to be fully sustainable is is going to be increased the only consideration a lot of people aren't making is the human health impact cost which the information economy has taken on the human body so there's a there's a really good academic actually who i've worked with uh, called vibar cregan reed works at my university really lovely guy he wrote a book called primate change and it's essentially looking at how the post-industrial economy has accelerated human evolution to ways which are adverse to health um, part of it is very interesting because he spoke a lot about how air air pollution has worsened respiratory pre-existing conditions and in it back in 2018 he did predict that there would be some sort of influenza pandemic that would be hitting sometime in the next decade so it's very prescient there but he talked a lot about how things like osteoporosis have become one of the leading complaints leading uh, prescribed medical issues you see this with you know painkillers and, and opioid prescription in the united states uh, mainly because a lot of sedentary work is done and one of the main things that was obviously increased during lockdown is at home working now not everyone did that as you said my old man was outside and fitting the ventilation units for all the hospitals and that so he's had a he's had a real go of it but my mum, for example she's been sitting indoors i've been sat on my backside doing you know working from computer 12 hours a day and it hasn't been wonderful for people's joints the only thing that has done with human behavior is the office of national statistics did a nature and outdoors usage report uh, late last year or it might have been released early this year but something like 76% of all people had in the first lockdown done weekly outdoor exercise because they've been working from home now this had a massive drop off in subsequent lockdowns because some real emotional apathy started hitting in and people just wanted to curl up on the sofa with a bottle of chocolate and a bottle of wine but there is as as you said tanya there is a real impetus for human personal responsibility for our own health there um, despite government edict being brought in which may quash it or even prior to the desirable outcomes for our health supposedly being uh, pushed through by government edict people will make more sustainable and healthier choices on their own desire so i'd like to turn to uh, consumer demands and the effects the pandemic has had on that so as i've already kind of outlined the increase with plastics um whether that be from companies such as Amazon, but also, you know, whether that's face shields, PPE, bubble wrap as well, has dramatically increased. And as a result, millions of discarded single-use plastics have been added to the environment and to the seabed. 
What effect has COVID-19 had on the recycling agenda and the spillover effects on the environment? Tanya, would you like to start? Yeah, I'm happy to. You know, I think, um, you, as you just said, obviously, you know, single-use masks, face shields, gloves, gowns, you know, all of these sort of PPE items that were not common for a lot of us in our lives, um, all of a sudden gained a lot of value. And, you know, there were rushes to buy things and use them. And, you know, I, I don't know um, what your experience has been, but for me, when I walk my dog, you know, I see several discarded single-use masks every single time, right? So, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's undoubtedly had a huge impact on, um, on the environment. And it's been one of the big downsides because I think you've seen this sort of overarching, you know, general, from a general standpoint, decrease in consumerism throughout the pandemic. People don't want to go to the store. They don't want to take on those risks, right? And besides online buying, which has definitely seen a big uptick, I think if you look sort of across the pandemic, we've seen a reduction in consumerism. And so there is, you know, a question ultimately, um, can we overcome this sort of single use plastic phenomenon in a way that's going to be beneficial given the sort of general trend towards less consumerism. And so can those two things meet as we talk about sort of building back better green recovery in really sort of trying to reduce human consumerism. And in particular, you know, the United States obviously is, is hugely problematic in terms of our levels of consumption. You know, I think one of the big issues has been um, you know, a lot of the bulk bins at, at, at stores um, have been closed during a pandemic, right? Because of the risk of, of just, you know, disease, um, potential disease conveyance through contact on those types of items. Um, for people who are fortunate enough to be able to do it, there's been a, a big uptake in, in takeout for food, right? And so you've seen lots more people getting takeout and that happens again, oftentimes in single use plastic containers. And so we are actually seeing though, I think on the, you know, the sort of silver lining side of things, really interesting um, movements in terms of trying to find alternative products in those spaces, you know, in particular for carry out foods um, that are compostable, um, that are, you know, it's not just that it's made out of recycled plastic, it's something that actually is not going to end up on the seabed floor, or if it does go there, it's going to rapidly degrade into something that's not going to be harmful. Um, and so I think that part of it has been really important, really interesting, um, and very difficult for me, you know, person on a personal level, someone who tries not to consume plastic, that has been nearly impossible, <laughs> you know, during, yep. during COVID times. Um, you've just seen, you know, this, this huge uptake in particular in the food sector um, and the use of plastic. And some of that is, is around sort of our fears of this virus and how it gets conveyed. Um, a lot of misunderstandings about the potential for it to get conveyed on surfaces. And so for some reason, you know, putting encasing something in plastic makes us feel safer about, you know, what's inside and that is going to have huge environmental impacts. So as, as you said, it's kind of very difficult on an individual choice basis to avoid single use plastics. But um, once we kind of end, well, come out of the end of this pandemic and everyone's been vaccinated and lockdown is over, uh, should government kind of take a, a, a bigger role or in that kind of regard in trying to eliminate single-use plastic or what do you think? I think that there's going to be two, I hope that there are going to be two sort of trajectories for how we respond to plastics. I think there is going to be, there's a lot of pressure right now already on governments to take action on plastics. There's discussions internationally about a global agreement on plastics. 
But I also think that you see a big uptake from consumers and saying, we don't want to do this anymore. There have been really successful um, campaigns to change, you know, human thinking and say anything from you don't want that straw with your drink because, you know, it's ramifications for sea turtles now to, you know, people really yeah. opening up their eyes and yeah. looking at their lifestyles and, and understanding just the significant levels of plastic that can potentially come into um, our lives as we consume things. So I think you're going to have those two pathways. Um, I don't, I think that um, at least, you know, for me, where I'm, where I'm located in North America on the West coast, you know, we do see huge human um, and societal demands for change. And that's going to, you know, that, that filters up to corporations. So the government doesn't get involved, but I think then we're going to start to see government action. So we'll sort of be hitting, hitting the market from both sides, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, as, as long as, well, from my perspective, if um, it's consumers de demanding change and corporations changing their patterns of behaviour in order for it to be profitable, then mm -hmm. sure. I mean, for example, with the McDonald's straw in the UK, it's been changed from single-use plastic to piece of cardboard, which is uh, it's it's much more profitable on a unit per unit basis as well. So there are certain incentives for you know businesses to make those changes. Um, yeah, so I'd, I'd like to kind of turn to um, water quality now, because we've talked about how single-use plastics have ended up a lot of the time in oceans, but we haven't really talked about the kind of, you know, changes in transportation and how that side of things has worked. Um, for example, if we if we look at um, Vembanad Lake in India, I, I've probably butchered that pronunciation, the quantity of suspended particle matter has completely dropped off. Uh, during the initial months of the pandemic. So, so what kind of effects do you think the, the COVID pandemic has had on improvements to water quality, if any? Yeah, and I think, you know, to take them together, I think both impacts to, to water quality and to air quality, generally speaking, we've seen some really significant improvements, right? Um, again, a lot of it relating, some of it relating to both the transport and sort of consumerism, which we've been talking about. Um, and that, but not to get into like, you know, too many of the gory details, there's case by case examples in cities and places all around the globe, as you just pointed to one of them. But I think there is a really huge overarching question as um, in particular for us in the, in the developed world, as we get vaccinated, we start to return um, to life, whether those any of those benefits are going to continue. And I think that is um, a really Huge question, and I think the answer is probably not. You know, we've seen, you know, significant drops in some of our emissions of some of the, you know, the global warming um, pollutants in particular, again, on water quality, as you were saying. Yeah. Um, and that's all been really beneficial, but all of that is tied to, again, sort of these lockdowns and people staying at home, not consuming as much. And so, as we look at you know people getting vaccinated, at people thinking about returning to offices, um, going back to stores, you know there is a really great likelihood that all of that is going to change, you know, in the blink of an eye, um, snap of your fingers, so to speak. So, I think that that's sort of where we stand. Um, and you know we have these benefits, and so there's a question about um, do we recognize them? Are we are we able to comprehend sort of the benefits and and what we've been able to accomplish with that? Um, and will that change patterns and alter behavior going forward? Um, and I think that's a really big open-ended question because you know, I think a lot of members of society right now, they wanna go back. 
there's not as much of a conversation about going forward um, as there is about going back. Yeah. I would agree with that. Uh, Connor, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, there's definitely there's definitely an impetus for regressive uh, growth and that people see the lockdowns as some sort of tool of decelerating what they believe to be is industrial action that, that uh, hampers climate issues. I wrote a piece in The Federalist about this. Um, people as high profile as David Attenborough, some of the people at the World Economic Forum, the founders of Extinction Rebellion are looking to use this sort of tool. And the, the substantive foundation for that is of course if you cease a lot of economic activity worldwide things like water quality will uh, uh, massively increase we saw things like nitrogen oxide emissions dip low again as we were talking about before with ppe and plastic waste there are i, I had a look I, I know there's some reports of people like marine conservation society who found about 30 percent of their beach cleanups had uh, ppe equipment from this year in them and 69% of inland litter pickups, and this was as early as, as November, so obviously it's been getting worse since then, is about 59 million masks every day are thrown away. Wow. Most of wow. the masks themselves, uh, about 53 million masks are sent into landfill every day um, in the UK, and most of the masks, 90% are reusable. Most people use the disposable blue plastic ones, and they, they each take 450 years each to decay, which is a longer than the life size of a plastic bag, just because of the density of the... Uh, plastic microfibers um, i believe i remember seeing there was a thing i'll just see if i've written it down somewhere yeah if everyone in the uk used one face mask a day for a year it would produce sixty-six thousand tons of additional contaminated waste and fifty-seven thousand tons of plastic packaging so that's and as well as of course if you were talking about plastic bottles that takes into account the extra use of hand sanitizer there's there's an immense amount of waste just being produced by the everyday use of pp equipment that surely there's there's a knock-on effect of it cancelling out some of the positive benefits that might be gained from, for example, having less uh, air pollutants contaminating the water supply. So there's a lot of things people aren't considering and people who want to use some sort of regressive growth tactic like a lockdown to have what they believe to see some finan uh, uh, economic benefit on, uh, sorry, ecological benefit on the planet where they kept going, oh, nature is healing. The dolphins are coming back to... Venice or whatever the hell. It's, <laughs> it's definitely not taking into account all of the other implications that are involved in lockdowns. Would you say though that people have not become more acutely aware of their own environment because of the pandemic? Um, whether that be you know, in, in terms of water quality uh, and perhaps once this is all over, don't, don't want to return back to how things were. You know, maybe they want to return to how consumerism was, but they don't want to return to you know, the environmental costs that it incurred. Would you say that might be the case, Connor? I'd say that people may be more willing to make sustainable choices, but that's one dependent on their economic circumstances, one which will get substantially worse, has got substantially worse during lockdown and will get substantially worse for a lot of people following the unprecedented amount of debt. Um, for example, as early as September last year, we exceeded 100% of uh, GDP being debt. So we're, we're in unprecedented amount of you know, borrowing and debt for, for peacetime. Uh, that's also happening in the US. It was 35% of all dollars ever in existence were created last year. That's a 66% inflation increase. And there's no sign of that stopping with the stimulus plans. Um, and also the, the Biden tax plan wants to massively raise in oligarchical fashion with 130 countries um, the corporate tax. Ireland has just voted down, yes. Yeah, exactly. So Ireland has essentially said no because that will drive all of our investment away at peak economic recovery time. So there's some, there's some doubt sown in there, but the, the intention is definitely there to 
Hamper or Economic Growth, FDR, New Deal style. Anyone who wants an interesting read, by the way, go and look at the Foundation for Economic Education's articles on that, because they broke down exactly the, the delay fashion. And that similar thing happened under Obama. So you can see where Biden's got his ideas from. Um, so people may want the same rate of consumption. We can see this because Amazon's profits have been record. Funnily enough, Jeff Bezos is one of the only prominent voices in the... Uh, <laughs> big business community who have come out and said, yes, I support the Biden tax plan. Um, isn't that hilarious? Of course, he wants his competition to not be able to uh, make up certain gains that have been widened with the disparity uh, during the pandemic where Amazon essentially claimed a monopoly on home delivery. But people obviously don't fully understand that you can't, you can't have one without the other. Um, and the ability to make those more conscious sustainable purchase choices are going to be hampered by the economic circumstances that have been caused by lockdowns in the first place. So as, as much as people, again, may adopt those brilliant uh, personal responsibility factors, um, those pointing to lockdowns as, hey, these were necessary to usher this in, it actively disincentivizes people from making those perhaps financially heftier, but more sustainable and ethical purchasing decisions because of the economic circumstances that have been created by the lockdowns. I think, I think one of the overlays that I see on top of all of that, and it's a question that I really want to get your input on, is to my mind, it's sort of the elephant in the room, right? Um, you know, one of the things that a lot of people are not talking about is, is why did this happen? Um, and how did this happen? And, you know, obviously, there are some people who believe that this virus came from a lab, but, you know, whether that's true or not, I don't think it is. Um, the genetic material for it undoubtedly originated in wildlife. And, you know, one of the things that has happened over the course of this pandemic is we've actually had a lot of scientists who study disease epidemiology speak up and say, look, we've entered the era of pandemics, right? We have, we have so many people um, throughout the world. We consume so much wildlife. We use so many natural resources. You know, we have entered a phase where, you know, we have a new infectious disease impacting people on average every eight months. And I was looking at a span of 25 years. Um, and we expect a pandemic like this one, like the COVID-19 pandemic every decade, unless we transform how we interact with nature. And so I think, you know, we're looking at devastating economic consequences from this pandemic. We're talking about what do we do next? And I think we have to address that elephant in the room, which is part of the solution has to be altering in a pretty significant way how we interact with, with nature and wildlife, or we're going to end up in this situation again. And it's gonna be hard to come back from this current pandemic, right? And the economic com consequences of it. But if we're talking about doing this every 10 years, I mean, that's, that's gonna be catastrophic. And so one of the big questions is how do we look at that future? How do we bring about that transformative change in a way that is going to work across society? And I think one of the models to me that's really interesting is, you know, looking at, um, in particular, wildlife and anti-poaching efforts, and then ecotourism. And you've seen a lot of instances where you had people who were either involved in illegal poaching of, of wildlife or who used to be involved in the wildlife trade who get transitioned and they become you know, anti-poaching rangers or ecotourism. And one of the big things that we're hearing on the pan pandemic prevention side of things is we need surveillance, we need monitoring. Um, and so we need to be talking about 
cutting back on the wildlife trade, um, we need to talk about shortening supply chains. You know, obviously there are local communities that depend entirely on wildlife and on nature for sustenance. We're not gonna be able to change that. What we can change though, are the luxury goods that make it to the US. So we like to import bats encased in plastic. That has a huge disease risk. It's not a disease risk for me if I want one in my, in my house. It's a huge disease risk for someone in another country that went and captured that animal and got involved in the wildlife trade chain. And as we've learned from COVID-19, you know, where that happens, it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, we have the ability now in our global society for a disease to spread halfway around the, the world before it even incubates, before the person or the animal even knows they're sick. And so what we have to really think about is how do we change those patterns as part of this sort of green recovery? Um, and what are ways that we can take the resources that we devote to that recovery um, and make them work for what the science is telling us we're gonna need, but also to try to prevent this from happening again, because the consequences of another pandemic are far more significant economically than the cost of trying to prevent one. And so just sort of one more other point, which is that stepping back, you know, this is the symptom of our biodiversity crisis. I mean, the reason why this is happening is because of our unhealthy relationship. And so there are tangential benefits if we take steps to try to reduce disease risk in terms of how we interact with nature and wildlife, that's gonna have benefits for biodiversity, it's gonna have benefits for climate. And so we need to sort of have this shift in our thinking of how we reproach, you know, what comes next. Um, but Connor, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because it's it's a big change. Yeah, there's 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 plenty there. So obviously, person, uh, <laughs> uh, cheers for all the meat to sink my teeth into because obviously I, I absolutely <laughs> need an excuse to just talk forever. Um, first of all, I will say in in regards to and this is a theory I wrote about back in March before it even hit England. The may have originated in a lab thing, given. Yeah, there were of all the species that were analyzed at being at the Wuhan wet market, none of them actually contained the coronavirus. I think the, the species of bat that was suspected to have it was about a thousand miles away. And the gain of function research that was going on at the Wuhan Virology Institute was very suspect. I think there's a there's a fairly high chance that it may have come from there. Um, and our pandemic response, as, as you said, because we live in a very globally interconnected world, it's very dependent on the transparency of governments and international bodies. Uh, the WHO have been very reluctant to properly investigate China about this. China have definitely not been forthcoming about their operations in the area to the point of where they try to blame the US military for creating this as a bioweapon, which is absolute insanity. Um, but it, it does definitely expose the, if it originated in the wet market, for example, um, whether or not it did. I wrote a piece on this quite a way back about China's uh, animal rights abuses relating to the Yulin Dog Festival. You cannot create what is essentially a pandemic petri dish by intermingling an unregulated wildlife trade, especially when you're having all these environmental impacts and you're... The, the world itself that we're creating is definitely influencing the development of diseases that have animal-to-human transmission in animal species. So you can't just be mixing all of these unregulated, poached and, and consumed species in an unsanitary environment. So one of the things we can do, at least preliminarily, a lot of focus is going on, you know, oh, what, what do we do instead of lockdown policy next time? Uh, do we stock on PPE? One of the things we can do preliminarily is to put international pressure on places like China who have these animal rights violations uh, and have these unsanitary wildlife and exotic wildlife trade practices to seize them. Now, obviously, a lot of conversation is going to be in the foreign policy sphere about how much pressure is put on China, not just for COVID and the sanctions and the economic damage inflicted by that, for things like Hong Kong, for things like Taiwan, etc. But that should be one of the 
primary focus is in the next little while to prevent another instance like this happening in the long term. To prevent future economic damage, it's all about how we personally respond to it. Again, we should have absolutely not done the lockdown for principle and efficacy because it, it didn't work as intended, of course, especially with the seasonal virus. But the original World Health Organization guidance was to shield the vulnerable. What we could have done, for example, one thing that I was talking to uh, with a couple of policymakers as a concept is they could have simply, instead of done the furlough scheme, you could have done a tax write-off scheme for anyone who was provably vulnerable to the disease, had to self-isolate for extended periods of time. The companies they work for could have put it down as extended sick pay and the government could have given them a, a tax write-off on their, on, on their end of year returns in April. But we just need a bit more creative, less centralized, less uh, imposing widespread flat controls on everyone when this inevitably happens again, because unfortunately, as you said, it will, um, as, a, as a biodiversity factor, we're, we're looking down the barrel or something again. We've just got to have a smarter response and more transparent international governments next time around. Yeah. I mean, even if you take something like Taiwan's response as a model for responding to pandemics, say they immediately locked down their borders. I think it was in the first couple of days after New Year's 2019 to China. Um, rather than listening to WHO advice and, and kind of, you know, pandering to this kind of what was, in my opinion, quite petty political points, you know. Yeah, and we, we, didn't, we, we, didn't her- we didn't herald their warnings either. And then when the, no. when the WHO had a online conversation with Taiwan, the rep who was fielding the questions pretended he didn't hear the question about Taiwan's membership the first Twice. time. And told him was his, yeah, first question. And when she asked the second question, he hung up the call. So it's, it's, there's clearly some... Political partisan, political partisanship doesn't quite cut it. Some pandering to the authoritarianism of China, um, especially if you look at the how the appointment of its head, uh, Dr. Tedros, made it there. There's there's clearly some again non-transparency with our international governmental bodies. Yeah, but before we go down the the kind of cul-de-sac of how do we uh, you know respond to China and the WHO, I kind of want to turn more to now the kind of biodiversity impact COVID nineteen and the lockdown policies have had. Um, so, I mean, if we take, for example, something like illegal fishing, um, a number of places in the world have seen a surge in it as commercial fishing boats have taken advantage of a reduction in patrol boats. Uh, you know, um, Brazil is a, a great case and point of that. So are there kind of any other examples in that kind of area? I know, um, Tanya, you said something about biodiversity earlier in the podcast. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and I did want to just say like two things really quickly in response to what Connor said before we get into, um, you know, what the impacts have been on the black market um, from COVID-19. You know, I think one of the things we have to remember is um, disease risk from the wildlife trade doesn't pick and choose between what's legal and illegal. And there's been a lot of, of messaging internationally, oh, you know, if we combat illegal trade, if we stop illegal trade, if we ban illegal trade, which it's already been banned because it's illegal, right? Um, that that's going to cut down on disease risk. And and in reality, you know, the wildlife trade, you capture animals, you take them from wildlife farms, you transport them, you put them in conditions that are stressful, and you combine species that aren't normally found together in nature. That's the perfect petri dish for diseases to evolve and emerge and potentially affect people who are involved at every step of the trade. So I think we have to remember, um, we're not just talking about the illegal activities here, legal legal wildlife trade, which is huge and significant globally. Um, That in and of itself is a huge factor. And I think one of the other things that we do have to recall is the role that the EU, that the United States, um, Japan and China play in the wildlife market, we are the four largest consumers of wildlife. And so when we talk about, oh, you know, this was China's problem, this came about from China, 
that may or may not be true. They may have been engaging in wildlife practices or trade to fuel a market that demand is um, coming from our countries. Um, and so we have to acknowledge the role that we play. You know, it may not be that we consume live wildlife at the same um, rate and for the same reasons as other countries do, but think about it. If someone, you know, hops on a bike, goes to the mountains, captures a bat, you know, takes it to the, you know, the small urban center, the guy in the truck takes the bat, puts it in cages along with civets from a wildlife farm, goes to the next place to the point where you get to that urban center where some of those animals go to a market, some of those go to a restaurant, some of them go on a boat, you know, to the US, some of them get made into products that get shipped to the UK, the disease risk is the same to that point. And so we cannot just say that this is a problem in biodiverse rich areas and how they consume wildlife. We're part of the problem. We're huge consumers of wildlife. We have to acknowledge that. And that means not only um, changing our practices as consumers in our countries, but also putting our money where our mouth is. Um, we need to be able to fund and support efforts to alter those wildlife supply chains and to reduce them, cut them back and make sure that we transition livelihoods in those countries. So getting then onto the question, and I don't know, Connor, if you wanna respond on that stuff, I'm happy to, to get into the, more of a discussion or we can talk about the sort of poaching um, illegal activities during COVID. I, I can hop on to that later. You're, you're more than welcome to talk at length. <laughs> All right. Well, and, you know, so I think that, you know, this is one of the really interesting questions. And I don't know on balance whether it's going to be positive or negative, because we saw early on in the pandemic, there were a lot of black market routes that really dried off at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and so, you know, Poaching for rhinos um, is is a good is a good case study of sort of where there were actually some benefits originally from the pandemic because you just had sort of fear of the virus, people not going out, you know, and you see sort of these black market supply chains um, dying off. That obviously has changed, you know, and part of it is you have a lot of livelihoods that have been impacted by the pandemic. There's no doubt about that, and as people become desperate that changes how they interact with wildlife. And so as you were noting, you know, you see this uptick in some places, this realization, oh, there's no monitoring. So we can go out and fish illegally. Oh, yeah. there aren't the same level of, of, of patrols, um, you know, in wildlife areas. Oh, we could go out and engage in poaching. And I don't think that there is clear scientific evidence yet of on balance you know, this experience is gonna be beneficial or detrimental for wildlife. But I think given the, the really significant economic consequences we've been talking about, I think it's very, very likely that ultimately it's going to be um, pretty detrimental for, for wildlife conservation. I think a lot of the gains and the benefits that we've seen are things that are going to, you know, ultimately on balance going to end up being negative. Um, and, you know, the lack of tourism dollars is, is really huge. That's really significant. That is something that fuels large portions of economies in different regions that have been really beneficial for wildlife. So not having that influx of those tourism dollars has been a hugely negative impact. And again, that's a lot of jobs lost and that's a lot of people turning to anything in desperation to feed their families, to try to make some money, to try to continue on. And so I think those are really significant impacts um, that again, as we talk about what comes next, um, we're gonna really have to address and deal with. Yeah, just on the note of supply chains, um, mm -hmm. I know J Japan, for example, are spending billions of pounds bringing their own supply chains back to their shores and basically getting them out, you know, their domestic 
companies out of China and places like that. Uh, and similar conversations have been had in the UK. Um, whether that extends to you know wildlife consumption as well, um, I, I don't really know. But um, Connor, um, do you want to respond? Yeah, sure. I will say on the idea that the UK is trying to break away from China as its leading supplier. Uh, there's something that BBC put out today, uh, the Office of Statistics as well. Turns out that China are now our largest importer directly because of this year, and they've overshadowed Germany. So it's both because of uh, the, the Brexit renegotiation deal and of, because of the immediacy of uh, supply chains being needed while we're all locked down, most of the world locked down. But China, specifically Wuhan, uh, reopened very quickly. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. That's brilliant what happens when you can weld people into their homes, I suppose. But uh, also, <laughs> as well, unfortunately, with, with the government at the moment, we've had quite a talking out the both sides of my mouth approach to China. So when we did our military review quite a while ago, there was the the unique concern expressed by the Uyghurs. I spoke about this on Brian Hyde's show mm -hmm. um, a few a few months ago. It was very interesting. It's shameless plug there. But at the same time, we then turned around and said, okay, we need to pursue a positive trade relationship with China and work with them to bolster tra uh, and on climate change as well. Where, where we can. Yeah, where we yeah, can. Yeah, exactly. But, but the fact that where we can means the door is still open for a little bit of appeasement, which I'm not particularly delighted about. Instead, we should be looking to the neighboring countries, as you said, like Japan, and especially at this time, India, we should be helping our Commonwealth partners rebuild, especially after they've been hit by a pretty nasty um, second wave at this point. As for yeah. the unregulated wildlife trade, yet yeah, supply chains are a, a massive issue. And that's why we should be, again, looking to more ethical trade partners for getting our... Okay, obviously, there's going to be a big disparity in, in things that are eaten. The reason that China is a pandemic petri dish, if it came from the wet market, disclosure, is because of the different species of animal which are not normally consumed by humans either, typically mixing together at the same time with unsanitary practices like the water, like the floors being wet with blood and live uh, slaughtering and sale of, of animals. So if we're getting our supply chains from the same region as that, probably not the best of ideas. Instead, we should be looking to, I know there's a little bit of controversy about buying from Australia, et cetera, at the moment, or New Zealand lamb, for example. I've got a paper coming out with the ASI soon where we were pursuing some form of uh, clean free trade alliance with the Kansas nations and it actually costs less in carbon to produce and ship lamb from new zealand over to britain than it does to create beef and lamb over here yeah. um, now of course supporting british farmers excellent we can find all the ways we can do that would like subsidies to be a tad lower though however if we can pursue more positive trade relationships with our supply chains and lots of people aren't going to be giving up meat me included um to in the near future we should be again allowing consumers to make more of those ethical purchasing choices and having it so that our, our trade legislation can incentivize more ethically sourced goods from friendlier nations than china the only problem is of course the lockdowns again the economic conditions that they've created mean that it is going to hamper a lot of working families abilities to make those sustainable trade um, and and purchase choices so if we want a, a sustainable future, we've got to, one, work it out so we get better source goods, and two, ensure that these sort of lockdown policies never go ahead again if there is a, if there is a pandemic, because the economic hampering that's been conducted is, is borderline irreparable. Well, thank, thank you very much both for uh, taking part in what's been a very interesting discussion, and it's, it's taken some caveats and turns, which I wasn't really expecting, but have thoroughly enjoyed. Um, 
now Connor is a perfect time for you to uh, make that plug so uh, where, where can we find out more about your work uh, I am usually ranting and raving over with the British Conservation Alliance. I'm the policy director, as usual. It's, it might be a little organization you, you've heard of before. I'm also a member of the Young Voices <laughs> Contributor Program. Uh, I usually just repost the articles on my Twitter at Mass Affected. And I normally just annoy people on podcasts like this. So if you're mad enough to look at my unsolicited opinions, you're more than welcome to investigate that in the future. And, and Tanya, where can we find out more about your work? Yeah, the Center for Biological Diversity, um, you can find us online at biologicaldiversity.org um, and you can look me up on Twitter, TS4 Biodiversity. Fantastic. Um, and if you want to learn more about uh, the BCA, um, our website is www.bca.eco or we're on the Twitter handle at BCA underscore eco. Uh, thank you all very much again. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Green Market. Subscribe to our channels wherever you're listening to us to make sure you see every time we post a new episode.